G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. It's another continent, it's another world. Um, in fact, it's all I've known. I was born in Africa, I've lived there my whole life. I was brought up in Rhodesia, what today is Zimbabwe. So I was, from age five, uh, we were being warned, don't switch on the light without closing the curtains. Don't go out the front door without switching off the lights. Uh, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, school teachers carried machine guns. The roads were endangered by landmines when we went on school outings. There was a very real chance of both landmines or ambushes, and, and that was part of our life. We were living in, in, in a war, and to be honest, I felt safe uh, because uh, we were brought up in a situation where we had a can-do attitude. Everyone muscled in. You saw the, the mothers pushing their baby carriages, prams with uh, revolver and hip or machine guns over their shoulder. And that was a normal life for farmers and people in rural Rhodesia, and uh, well, when I got converted to Christ in South Africa, called up to South African Defense Force, I saw my mission field because I, I saw in communist Angola, the neighboring country to the north where we were in operations, uh, people who didn't have legs and who had had their churches burned down. You asked them, what can we do to help you? And time and again, you heard these people say in Portuguese, Biblia, Biblia. They wanted Bibles. And that's where our mission really got our vision from because here were these people weeping and jumping for joy and hugging you and kissing you both cheeks and saying, I've never had a Bible before. This is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for. And that's life in a large part of Africa, and they need missionaries. Here we are in Australia, and I'll get your uh, observation of Aussies. And I'm not sure how long since you landed on our shores. Have you been here before? Or? I've been here once before okay. in 2003, and I've arrived on Wednesday. Okay, on Wednesday, you would have arrived at the airport and uh, you would have gone through the usual security type uh, checks and uh, coming through customs. Uh, but then on the other side, nobody's carrying a firearm. Uh, everybody's basically peaceful. When you describe your upbringing as a different world, it truly is a different world. Here in Australia, in, in fact, uh, uh, by comparison to many of the countries in Africa, we're all really quite rich. Uh, we somehow rather don't feel the need for, uh, you know, the Biblia, the Bible. <laughs> somehow rather, you've got a different world here in Australia. When you bring your message, sometimes it's going to be a little bit confronting and we just that's not our world how are you how are you being received where you've spoken so far and i know you've been speaking to audiences on the weekend well there is definitely positive and negative they they say that uh, a missionary's job description is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable and i think that's a lot of what i do because i'm aware of the fact that a lot of what i say is perceived as controversial unsettling disturbing uh some people find it inspiring, encouraging, upbuilding, but there's others who feel threatened. And uh, it's not that one's trying to be offensive or unsettling, but I want to be a true spokesman for the persecuted church in places in Africa like Sudan, northern Nigeria, Egypt, where Christians are really on the front line for their faith and, and, and they're suffering. And uh, in fact, where you may have to 
you've got to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Uh, and that's reality. There's a lot of Christians who've, who've died for their faith in Africa. I've, I've been imprisoned and uh, gone through their torture sequences uh, on a number of occasions. So I know that's part of our life, and I see that as normal. I never thought I'd reach 58 years old and that I'd be in missions for 37 years and counting. I really didn't expect to last that long. And God's grace has been amazing and extraordinary. And the first time I got locked up in prison uh, in a communist country, I, I never thought I'd see my family or anything, let alone Australia. So I know that uh, it's been an adventure of discipleship for me. And for some people listening to these reports, they probably don't know what to do with it. But it's, it's still real life for our brethren in many parts of Africa. Ready to preach, pray or die at a moment's notice. Uh, that puts us on notice here in Australia because we're not in that mindset. Uh, in fact, I'll get your thoughts because there is a tendency, I think, when people look at the scriptures, Christians in Australia, and uh, and because we're living a, t- a typically comfortable life, uh, we can even look at uh, an expectation that uh, Jesus is coming soon, a rapture might take me away, uh, somehow or other I'll miss out on the messy, dangerous parts of what might happen in a, a Christian life uh, into the future. There's this idea of escapism. We're going to escape all of that. But really, your impressions here about the idea that there's so many parts of the world where you are, where uh, that's not an option, and you've got to be someone who can stand for your faith, preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Yes, I must say, Australia's very peaceful. It feels surreal. It doesn't feel like this is real life to me. Uh, It seems that things are awfully comfortable, safe, secure, predictable, in Australia, and uh, I must say it, it's, it's almost hard to believe that this is part of the world that we live in today. I think it's like when I visited Disney World, you know, you, you think this isn't real life. Australia has some Christian foundations, <laughs> and a lot of what we see and what we experience here, and I think lots of Christian believers here don't know our history, don't know so completely this level of our heritage but uh, a lot of the peacefulness that we see here in Australia we would put down to having a Christian heritage and uh, the systems that we inherited uh, when uh, the British uh, colonized Australia those things that came from the great awakening out of the uh, out of the 18th century but in Zimbabwe those foundations are not there uh, other places around Africa those foundations are not there and so you have a very different cultural way that people are, and as you say, they're carrying guns and machine guns. Yes. Well, I must say, Australia's got an inspiring flag when you've got the the crosses of St. George and St. Andrews, and you've got the Southern Cross. And yes, we know that originally Australia was dedicated to the Holy Spirit, and many early founding fathers saw Australia as being a base of missionary operation to take the gospel throughout Asia. And you've got this massive mission field in your doorstep, everything from Indonesia through to China and Southeast Asia and India. So plainly, Australia had Christian roots and Christian foundations. And in preparing for this mission, I have been reading up on on some of your history. And it's extraordinary. I had no idea about the phenomenal moves of God amongst the miners and amongst the penal colonies and the tremendous pioneers of the gospel that, that really laid solid foundations I'm sure the present generation of, of Australia takes a lot of what you've got for granted and doesn't realize the sacrifice and also the 
faith and fervor of the early Australians who, who did lay solid Christian foundations. Obviously, something went wrong. I mean, you've got a town named after Darwin, and uh, that's, that's a little <laughs> disturbing. Uh, but when you think of Darwinian evolutionism and how it's inspired uh, some of the worst ideologies of the 20th century and godless governments like the Soviet Union, which have killed millions of Christians and uh, trampled over our Christian freedoms and heritages. So obviously there, there's a lot in Australia which people have forgotten their roots, forgotten their heritage, and in some cases turned their back on God, who was the foundation and is the only one who can be a true foundation for Australia. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. I must say, as an early Christian, uh, brand new Christian, called into missions, came out of a secular family, even though there's a lot of Christianity in South Africa. I was brought up in a secular family in Rhodesia. No prayer, no reading the Bible, no going to church or Sunday school, not even on Christmas. So I was brought up totally secular. But at age 17, I was confronted with the gospel of Christ. A Baptist church had taken over a local cinema, and I heard the gospel for the first time. I was expecting to see a film, but because of the laws in South Africa at the time, Sabbath laws, there was no cinemas open on a Sunday. Now, not where I was brought up in Rhodesia, what today's Zimbabwe, we had cinemas on Sunday, but not in South Africa, not in 1977. So I went in there, and I get ambushed with the gospel, and I was converted, and I was called to missions that night. That's the 3rd of April, 1977. So my whole life changed, transformed, and next thing I know, I'm getting involved in missions, and my first big mission field was South Afghan Army. I'm called up for the infantry, two years military service. And so uh, it was an extraordinary experience for me to go from being secular to being a Christian, and one of the turning points in my life was was standing up uh, in the first Sunday in, in the military and our chaplain service and asked chaplain afterwards, may I speak? And I turned and I faced this huge auditorium. There was at least 600 men there. And uh, I turned and I faced them. It was so intimidating. I remember the fear. Probably I felt greater fear making a stand for Christ then than I ever did later, including when I've been tortured, imprisoned, um, put in front of a firing squad and things like this because that was all part of what these characters had for us. I felt more peace then than did at this occasion, but this was terrifying. I had to make a stand for Christ, and I don't think I was ever more afraid in my life. I stood up, and I turned around, and I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, and I want to honor him in my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. That was the greatest challenge and fear of my life. Everything after that got easier, to be honest. People came. Bible studies grew prayer meeting every night, Bible study and prayer. We sometimes prayed through the night in, in um, shifts, uh, through the night in prayer chains. And the vision came of taking the gospel to communist Muslim countries, place where the church was persecuted, restricted access areas we tend to call it today. And, uh, you know, I, I remember since then, it's been sometimes an adrenaline rush. I think uh, sports is just, uh, it's it's a shadow of the real thing. The real thing's war. Um, and... <laughs> When you are in a life and death situation, it's it's exhilarating and it's exciting. I must admit, sometimes thinking, am I an adrenaline junkie? Because it's so exhilarating to be in these situations. The heightened sense of awareness when you've got to watch where you're putting your feet because they're landmines. You've got to watch what's in the bushes because there could be ambushes. You've got to be really attuned to the sounds of the sky because that could be an aerial attack coming. Uh, one time, we're driving in Sudan. 
uh, sadly, with the windows up, listening to a uh, sermon on, on uh, uh, tape deck. Uh, and and next thing, we were rocked by an explosion. I mean, and then we heard the afterburners of the jet. A MiG-23 had just swooped down and bombed us. We are driving near the battlefront in Sudan. Uh, I've never since then had the windows up and uh, something on because you've got to keep your senses alert. And uh, the, the crater in the road, oh, it could have easily been our car. It, it missed us by just a few feet. And uh, uh, But, I mean, there was this, whoa, <laughs> this experience of we've experienced the protection of God. Being in a church preaching, I was preaching Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God, and I was expounding Luther's Reformation, and suddenly in come these rockets and uh, exploding to the north, south, east, and west of us. And we're scrambling out the church, finding some ditch to hide in, and uh, you've got these screaming rockets, 122-millimeter rockets coming in, multiple rocket launchers. You know, they kind of come in one after the other. It's it's, it's incredible experience. But I don't recall. It, they, there must have been something resembling fear, but it wasn't the same felt standing up and making a stand for Christ. This fear was just exhilarating, uh, like I'm, I might be seeing the Lord any moment. And uh, there was the fear of, well, of course, I don't think I was afraid of death, but I was certainly afraid of being crippled. Uh, that that was always a great fear, uh, but um, this this exhilaration of of being under fire, and when the bombardment ended, we got back in the church, continued the sermon, and everyone came back. And I've had that several times in Sudan where we've been under either aerial bombardment or rocket or artillery bombardment, and the people tend to come back to church afterwards, which you won't find in my home country of South Africa, and I'm sure I wouldn't find in Australia or America. Or Britain, because we'd scatter. Yeah, who's going to come back to a church that's just been bombed? <laughs> but that does happen. There's there's this very different attitude. So, um, being in prison, being chained, being um, waterboarded, and all that kind of things that they do to prisoners, I, I found it actually quite exhilarating, uh, and and it just deepened my faith in the Lord and made it more exciting to be a Christian. I must say, I look forward to going back to the field, and to some degree. While there's things you look forward to coming home, I realize that you can't compare your spiritual life in peace and tranquility with what it is in these kind of frontline situations. So I actually find myself looking forward to going back to these places where where your life's in danger. It's, it's, it's a bit strange maybe to say that, but it's, it's part of our mission. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Africa is a continent in conflict. Uh, what you get is in the north of Africa, it's overwhelmingly Islam. In the southern part of Africa, it's mostly communism. In the center of Africa, there's a lot of animism and witchcraft. And, of course, Christianity is throughout. And you hear some pretty horrific things, or you should do, uh, for example, just Nigeria, northern Nigeria, in a five-year period between 2010 and 2015, in those five years, 1,000 churches were attacked, car bombs, suicide bombers, machine gunning attacks, and so on. 1,000 churches attacked in five years with 17,000 Christians killed just by Boko Haram, a radical jihadist group in northern Nigeria. And so I'm just talking about one country. Just the northern part of that country in a five-year period, a 1,000 church attacked, 70,000 Christians killed. Now, that, that's pretty extreme. But now I could talk about Sudan, where you've got a government that uses Sharia law to try and bludgeon the Christians into submission. In the Nuba Mountains, where I've 
walked from one side to the other, and we've just had a mission team come back uh, in December from there. You've got these Christians, an island of Christianity and a sea of Islam under aerial bombardment, scorched earth attacks, landmines, tools of terror, kidnappings, slavery. So there's vicious attacks going on in Noob Mount. In one church I went to, Cowder, the evangelical church had been bombed 18 times in a 12-month period. In one of those bombings, 21 people were killed, 19 school children and two adults teachers. So that's uh, and I went to that church to encourage them. I've ministered there a number of times. And when I went there, I went to encourage them. But they ended up encouraging me. The church was packed to overflowing. There were people standing outside. There wasn't enough space inside. This is a church that's been bombed repeatedly. And uh, a, f- a friend of mine, uh, one of our co-workers, just returned from that same church in New Mountains in December. And uh, he, he showed me a film of it. There was this musical sound of bells. And I wasn't used to hearing bells in, in Sudan. They had a piece of shrapnel and um, a plainly an artillery shell and a rattling within the, shra- the, the shell with the shrapnel, making a bell. Sort of, and people using these as musical instruments. And to think uh, uh, implements of war now being used for spiritual warfare, um, extraordinary. But this is the kind of resilience you see amongst these people where they're not willing to, to deny their faith. I came to this one village in Chukadom where they had a huge cross on the hillside overlooking the village. And I said, and in fact, I counted 54 unexploded bombs in and around this village, not count the craters and the shrapnel. And I said, do the Arab government bomb you? And they said, oh, yes, they do. So I said, why do you have that big cross on top of your hill? And they answered with such intensity, we want the whole world to know we are Christians. And uh, that's kind of the attitude. There's cross on top of their huts, on top of the hillsides, they carry crosses. And so I thought, is this maybe superstition? So I asked the Sudanese uh, Christian, I've asked quite a few of them, what does the cross mean to you? And these are the kind of answers I got. The cross reminds us we have to be willing to pay the price to be a Christian. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. And I thought they might have had a superstition view, but it's, it's, it's more they're wanting to make a stand for Christ. And you see this in Egypt too. Christians who really want to be known as Christians, and they, they don't just want to merge uh, and, and avoid the persecution. It's almost like uh, they determined that I, I had a pastor say to me, in the West, you have a theology of prosperity. We have a theology of suffering. And I must say, you could just see the dramatic difference. It's not what can God do for me. It's, it's what, what can I suffer for him? He suffered for me. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And I've heard that over and over. But it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And he gave us an example that we follow in his footsteps. So I must say, going to minister persecuted church, you think you're going to minister them. They end up ministering to us and teaching us and challenging us. And I find my life's enriched and rebuked and challenged by every contact with the persecuted church. You've done quite a lot of research, Peter, into how Islam gets a foothold And you would have noticed this and uh, observed it throughout countries in Africa where Islam has gotten a foothold, uh, even to the idea of uh, of talking through uh, uh, issues of of how uh, jihad works, uh, depending on the percentage of Muslims in various populations. How does that foothold get a a, a grip on a nation uh, that you might have observed from uh, from your experience in Africa? Yes, well, it starts with infiltration and it can go all the way uh, through to uh, 
caliphate, from infiltrate to caliphate, one needs to watch out. For example, Sudan was once the largest country in Africa, and Sudan was once a Christian country. And for a thousand years, Sudan was a Christian country with a Christian majority, Christian kings. And from the 5th century to the 15th century, there were three great Christian kingdoms in what is today Islamic Sudan. And they militarily defeated the Muslim jihadists who were attacking them uh, from Egypt. And yet they finally succumbed from the inside. They weren't defeated from the external militarily, but they got infiltrated. They found the Muslim uh, merchants dominating the marketplaces. They started to have intermarriage. And, of course, before you knew it, well, if a Muslim marries a Christian, the children are brought up Muslim. And Sudan today is an Islamic state that persecutes Christians, but for a thousand years was Christian. Egypt was a Christian country planted by, by the evangelist Mark, John Mark, who, who wrote the, the book of Mark. And uh, the Egyptians fell to Islam under, in 642. And, and the, the Egyptian Christians are today a minority. Only 10% of the population of Egypt are Egyptians. The rest are Arab invaders who took over. So Arabic is not the language of Egypt. Coptic is the language of Egypt. But the Coptic Christians are now a minority in their own country, and Egypt has become now a Muslim state. Turkey was once the Byzantine Christian Empire. For a thousand years, it was the greatest Christian empire, the superpower of the world, the economic superpower. Constantinople was the greatest city in the world, and the Hagia Sophia was the largest Christian church in the world. And today, it's Turkey. It's the largest unreached people block in the world of, of Turks. What today is England, uh, to suggest that um, London could become Londonistan may sound a bit extreme, but it's possible. Today, English people are a minority in London. And I gave a, I've given this message quite a few times in, in Europe, reformation or Islamization. When Europe was about to be overwhelmed by Islam, when they were literally besieging Vienna, the Reformation under Professor Martin Luther galvanized Christianity in Europe and gave Europe a new breath of life and power that enabled him to resist the Islamization, both externally and internally, and the paganization. So basically, I look at it today and I think only Christianity, I mean Protestant, biblical, evangelical Christianity, has the ability, historically proven, to defeat Islam. You can't defeat an idea without a better idea. Secular humanism and hedonism doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of defeating Islam. They can't even understand it. Only if Australia has a new birth of Protestant Christianity, a Reformation revival, I believe that it's inevitable that paganism and later Islam would take over this country. So you have to rediscover your Christian roots, rebuild in the rock of God's word, have a biblical reformation. I think that is what's before us, reformation or Islamization. It's true for America. It's true for Africa, true for Australia. We have to get back to the Bible. Our, our national survival depends on recovering our spiritual roots because otherwise, if it's just secularism, it'll succumb to Islam. Islam is the face of the future unless one gets back to Reformation Christianity. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.